Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Coroner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since the last time we spent time together. Of course, it should come as no surprise that I have continued my research of Mela Nermi, better known as Vampira. After some consultation with paranormal enthusiast and avid crypt dweller and believer of the unknown, my film pal, Roderick Towers, I was given a lead on a book which I have just started to devour, Vampira, Goddess of Horror by Scott Poole. The book does not just focus on her life and creation of Vampira, the horror host, and rise to cult status, but also provides a history of America in the 1950s and the treatment of women and sex during this time. Don't fret, goblins and ghouls. Once I finish reading the book, I shall report back on my findings. This is just the first step in my transformation process as I become my own version of Vampira. You know, I've often been asked why I don't light my attic with electricity. Isn't that ridiculous? Everybody knows electricity is for chairs. Here. Let me darken the room. And we shall... Come in. In my search of all things Vampira, I recently fell down another rabbit hole, dear listeners, and have stumbled upon the fascinating world of old radio plays, which apparently Vampira also had a history with as well. This newfound interest pertains to the corpse of interest on today's program, Arch Obler, whom we shall be digging up in just a little bit. Born December 7, 1907, or possibly 1909, the year of birth being an actual mystery, Arch's contributions to the world have truly inspired me and I sense will have a large influence on the crypt. Much like Arch, I have found myself under the spell of the airwaves and thought it would be fun to share some of the information I uncovered before we pry open his coffin. This is the perfect family scene when Mom, Dad, and Junior all want to hear the same radio program. (laughs) But how often does it happen? This is more like it. Junior wants to hear his favorite Western show. And Dad must hear the news. This is the CBC News. Toronto, all Canada is... And Mom just can't miss that soap opera. I'm tired of you. Nothing you can say can change that. Oh, no. Well, that's life, isn't it? But you'll find the answer at your RCA Victor dealers in the complete line of famous RCA Victor personal radios. 
For Junior, there's the Nipper 3. Budget priced at only $29.95 in a choice of eight lively colors. As for Mom, she'll be thrilled with the radio that never forgets. The RCA Victor Clock Radio. Besides turning on appliances automatically, it can be set to remind Mom when her favorite program is on the air. And now, another chapter in the lives of Maud and Melvin Terhune. And Dad can now enjoy his news programs on this handsome 641. And after the news, he'll have fun with those six international wave bands. Yes, see these and other RCA Victor personal radios at your RCA Victor dealers. They all have RCA Victor's famous golden throat tone system. And they're all engineered by RCA Victor, world leader in radio. Radio plays or radio dramas were programs that, of course, had no visual aspects. Instead, they relied completely on dialogue, music, and sound effects to convey the story to its listener and hopefully spark their imagination to run wild. With the invention of the television in the 1950s, this form of storytelling took a back seat as listeners turned to black-mirrored boxes. Radio dramas saw a bit of revival with advances in digital recording and podcasting around 2010. For me, discovering these old radio plays has given me a reason to climb out of my bunk. Luckily, with the new fandangle technology that we all have come to enjoy these days, I am able to listen in the comfort of my velvet-lined coffin if I choose. I feel like I have only begun my descent into the wild world of radio dramas. However, with Arch Obler being the reason behind my newfound obsession, I felt it would only be fitting to discuss him first. Through the powers of the internets, I have discovered many of his radio stories that featured the likes of Joan Crawford, Agnes Moorhead, Katherine Hepburn, Boris Karloff, and James Cagney, just to name a few corpses that strike my fancy. Arch was most well known for the program Lights Out, which was originally created in 1934 by Willis Cooper. The program would air at the stroke of midnight and was notorious for what many felt at the time its ghastly, violent-filled stories. After Cooper left the program in 1936, NBC handed it over to Arch, giving him the chance to take over the series. The idea of creating my own radio program sounds like an absolute scream to me. Arch felt differently, saying, A weekly horror play that went on Tuesday at midnight to the somber introduction of 12 doleful chimes was not exactly my idea of writing Shangri-La. One could say he was not pleased, as he initially saw this opportunity as less than ideal. Lights Out brings you stories of the supernatural and the supernormal, dramatizing the fantasies and the mysteries of the unknown. We tell you this frankly, so if you wish to avoid the excitement and tension of these imaginative plays, we urge you calmly, but sincerely, to turn off your radio now. That view quickly changed 
a light bulb went off. It dawned on Obler what a show at midnight actually meant. Airing a show under the pale moonlight in the dead of night meant that there was a lack of advertising sponsors, which in turn gave him the freedom to experiment. Obler used the power of the airwaves to smuggle anti-fascist and radical messages onto the program. He would attempt to take his listeners into the minds of the characters by utilizing a technique known as stream of consciousness. This is primarily a literary style and is essentially the character's inner monologue. It allows, in this case, the listener to hear the inner thoughts and feelings of a character. This is Arch Obler. In a horrific time, in a horrible world, I have been asked to try and horrify you, all in fun, of course. A challenge in horror, so to speak. Now, I know that you're not a person who is easily frightened. Monsters, ghosts, the dead. Who gets scared at that sort of thing anymore? You don't. Or do you? Do you ever think of the undead? the ghostly ones crowded under their gravestones, the restless dead, millions of them there under the ground. May we try something? Turn your lights out. Yes, all of them. Lights out, everybody. Now then, sit down in a chair and turn your back to the loudspeaker. Yes, turn your back. Now sit quietly, very quietly. The room, very quiet. Now whatever I say, don't turn around. Remember that. Don't turn around. Do you hear that? Now, don't turn around. Something is coming up behind you. No, no, don't turn around. It's coming closer and closer and closer. It's something... Oh, no. Dead. It's been dead so very long. No, don't turn around. Closer and closer. Decay, the odor of decay. You almost smell it, can't you now? Don't turn. It's putting out its hand toward your neck. Skeleton hands reaching for your neck. Touching your neck. <coughs> It did not take Arch long to create controversy, particularly with one of his first radio plays entitled Burial Services. I attempted searching for this story online, but was unable to come across it. The story ends with a young girl being buried alive with no hope of rescue. How pleasant. Many listeners couldn't handle such terror sending in letters upon letters to NBC, voicing their disdain. In 1940, Arch began writing screenplays for Hollywood, making the jump from radio to film. Several people compared him to Orson Welles. Commentator Marty Bowman said, even as Wells shocked much of the nation with the unforgettable War of the World sham, so did Obler incite panic with an episode detailing the horror of a giant undulating chicken heart. 
The very fact that something patently silly could nonetheless be terrifying is a testament to Obler's genius for manipulating his medium. Like Wells, Obler was eventually summoned to Hollywood and began churning out feature scripts for Mellers like RKO's Gangway for Tomorrow, proving to producers that he knew his way around a screenplay. Arch was at last given the opportunity to direct. Although Arch's film career may not have been as storied as the great Orson Welles, he will forever be known for his impact on the airwaves. His motion pictures may be few, but seem to have influenced numerous creators and artists of today, including your favorite little gravedigger. According to a retrospective article at mondovideo.com, the likes of Rod Serling and Francis Truffaut have claimed Obler's films and radio work as significant influences. Arch directed his first picture, Strange Holiday, in 1945, starring Claude Rains. When a man returns from a camping holiday, he discovers that fascists have taken over the U.S. government. Hmm, maybe Arch Obler was a time traveler. As a son of Jewish immigrants, it was thought that many of Arch's stories were a product of his upbringing and experiences growing up. Many of his characters would find themselves suddenly in dismal conditions or helplessly being controlled by an unknown force. His victims would often become complacent or passive. Possibly this was his way of making a comment on society. Obler was fascinated with the world around him. And although he enjoyed dabbling in special effects, he more took pleasure in playing with the audience's fears and insecurities by only showing them just enough. He instead made use of dialogue and plot twists to get his point across. During an interview with the New York Times several months before his death on March 19, 1987, Obler had stated the reason that he turned down offers to sell many of his radio scripts to TV was that, basically, I think that TV talks too much and shows too much. He directed eight other films. On today's program, we will discuss his second feature in which he wrote and directed the 1945 black and white Bewitched. It's my belief that once in many, many millions of human births, a body can have two divergent personalities living in the same brain. What strange power caused this beautiful girl to leave the life she loved and submit to the influence for evil that twisted and turned within her tortured mind? What was this vile and diabolical voice within her that forced her hand to murder the man she loved? Interesting to note, before this was a film, it was, of course, a radio play written by Obler entitled Alter Ego, which was based on a true story of Christine Beauchamp, one of the first people diagnosed with a multiple personality disorder. This film was produced on an extremely low budget. According to Jeremy Arnold of TCM.com, Arch's radio experience helped him make the most of this small budget. The music was the most important to him, and he fought to get a great composer 
that typically scored A-movies, Bronislau Caper, who scored such flicks as Gaslight and Without Love. Additionally, Obler made use of techniques Orson Welles created, such as lightning mix. This is used during many of the montage scenes in Bewitched, in which scenes rapidly change and transition using a continuation of a sound effect or a line of dialogue. Primarily, this is mostly used to help compress time, as images may be superimposed to show reactions of the characters while you hear the sound. Alright, film pals, time to grab your cape and get comfortable. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. I uncovered the 1945 film Bewitched thanks to Turner Classic Movies' streaming app. They had a selection of films available recently that centered around psychics and seances. My partner in crime was kind enough to record a VHS copy of this flick so that I was sure not to miss it. After viewing it, three things became clear as a cloudless night under the pale moonlight. One, I would need to purchase a physical copy of this movie post-haste. Two, this was a film that I would need to share with my goblins and ghouls. And three, I needed to find out just who in the heck this Arch Obler was. Unfortunately, this film lacks the supernatural, psychic, or metaphysical element, but what it does have is hypnotism. After watching the film, I did question why TCM listed it in this category of psychic and seances, but then quickly came to realize I didn't give a damn, because if the movie wasn't on the app, I would have never discovered the awesomeness that is Obler. The story opens with our narrator, Santa Claus. Yes, the literal Santa Claus. You know, the old fella from Miracle on 34th Street, known to some as Edmund Gwen. Oh, no, you don't. I'm not going to be cheated this way. All my life I've wondered something, and now's my chance to find out. I'm going to find the answer to a question that's puzzled the world for centuries. Does Santa Claus sleep with his whiskers outside or in? Always sleep with them out. Cold air makes them grow. <sighs> Santa is Joan Ellis's doctor, the main character of this yarn, played by Phyllis Thaxter, who many shall recognize as Ma Kent from the 1978 film Superman. Joan is a shy, timid, young woman that hears a voice in her head that goes by the name Karen, who is played exceptionally well by Audrey Totter, who went on to appear in such films as Lady in the Lake and The Postman Always Rings Twice. While Joan is celebrating her engagement to Bob Arnold, Karen makes her first appearance, causing Joan to have a complete meltdown. Of course, that means it ends with a piercing scream. Joan. Who, who is it? Who's calling my name? 
Joan. Where are you? Where are you? Please, where are you? You're frightening me. You... You know where I am. In my head. In my head. Yes, in your head. Stop saying that and listen to me. That's where I am and that's where I've been all these years. Two of us. Yes, yes. The two of us living in you. Oh. You've known I've been there. Oh, yes, you have. I've been fighting with you all your life. You've felt me inside of you, but you haven't dared admit that I was there. But n now i found words. Only you hear them in your own head, but they're words, and they'll give me what belongs to me. Listen, you. I've waited a long time for this. You've got to let me live. Yes, live. Speak words that others can hear. Do what I want with this. You give it up to me. To me. To me. I've been in the dark for so long. You must. You will. I won't go back in the dark. I'll live. I'll Bob is concerned, which is expected, so he takes Joan to a petting zoo. I think many shall find, much like myself, Bob was skating on thin ice, pretty much from the start. It is the moment, though, that he refers to Joan as a grandma that sealed his fate to me. If my partner in crime referred to me as a grandma to a small child, two words, coffin time. Is there anything we can do for you, little girl? Would you take me to see the hippomotamus? Well, I've got a date. Why don't you ask your mother to take you? Mama says if someone will take me, I can go. So will you please, huh, mister? Do you mind if I take my grandmother along? Fortunately, Joan has Karen to talk some sense into her. They take a walk through the city streets under the pale moonlight, and it is decided that she must run away and leave everything behind. So let's discuss Karen for a moment. Her voice is anything but soothing. However, goblins and ghouls, there are moments in which I found Karen's logic to be quite, oh, what's the word? Sound. Even if you don't agree with my feelings on Karen, there is one thing I am positive we can see eye to eye on, and that is that the voice acting is superb. Audrey Totter's delivery is absolutely menacing and easily will leave one unnerved. I believe this may be due to Arch's history in radio. This helped him convey the terror using only sound. Do you think you can run away from me? Joan leaves a note to her mother, informing the family that she is leaving town, and instructs them not to look for her, and to help Bob understand. Just like that, she abandons her quiet, Midwestern life for the Big Apple, changes her name to Joan Smith, and acquires a job at a cigarette counter. 
My initial feeling was that, despite the circumstances, Joan seemed quite happy with her new life, almost a twinkle of excitement in her eye. Of course, this is short-lived, when an attorney walks into her life. Within minutes of starting her new job, a pesky attorney, Eric, waltzes up to the counter, demanding her time. He persistently asks her out, and she finally caves when he mentions a night spent on a boat. I would like to believe that she was hoping he would find himself overboard. Thankfully, Karen knows how to make an entrance, showing up at the most opportune time, just as Eric is professing his love to Joan and the talk of marriage. Joan, I've never had much. Maybe I won't ever. But if you'll marry me, I'll love you and want you the rest of my life. Of course, this sends Joan into quite a tizzy. She thought, in coming to New York, Karen found another body to inhabit. Matters only get worse for Joan when she returns to her apartment after the boat cruise to find Bob waiting. With the help of a gumshoe, he tracked her down. I would not go as far to say that Joan is happy to see Bob, but seems to be somewhat relieved to see a person from home, especially at a time she is feeling vulnerable with the return of Karen. Bob's solution will just come home. Once again, thank God for Karen. I mean, come on, who wants to go anywhere with Bob? He called her a grandma. This leads to one of my absolute favorite scenes in the film. And if you watch the flick, you will of course understand immediately. There are scissors present. There is murder. Joan. You have come back. Yes, Joan. You lied. You lied to me. You said you'd leave me alone. You've come back. You've come back. Yes, I came back on the boat. I'll live now. I've got what I want, his arms. Yes, tonight he kissed me, not you, me, me. I'll bury you and me as you've buried me and you all these years. Your eyes will be my eyes, your lips my lips, your arms my arms. I'll make your body sing and cry. I'll make it dance and burn and crawl in the mud. I won't let you. I'm going back. I'll tell them about you. They won't believe you. They'll say you're mad. Joan, listen to me. Oh, Everything's going to be all right. You've got to believe that. If you don't want to marry me, well, that'll be all right, too. Just come back home to the people who love you, your mother and your father. Oh, no, tell me on the train. From now on, you're going to listen to me. No more running away from yourself, young lady. Whatever it is, no more running away. Bob, listen. Don't worry, I won't forget anything. Pass me those things on the table, will you, dear? 
the scissors. Did you say something? No, no, I didn't. Pick them up. You must. You will. Well, goodbye, Bob. Unfortunately for Joan, she is charged with murder. Eric comes to her defense, though, as her attorney, pleading with Joan to share with him what is going on. He senses she is hiding something. Santa Claus is even called to her defense, but insists she's not insane, as nothing points to that. It's plain and simple. She killed Bob, which in my opinion is understandable. However, others, such as Santa Claus, see it as murder in cold blood. So I have to admit, this is the part where I truly do feel bad for Eric. He's left in the dark, and he fell for Joan so hard. He's trying everything in his power to help her. He even tries to use his charismatic, lawyery ways with the jury to obtain a not guilty plea. Gentlemen of the jury, why has she remained silent? Because she would rather die than tell the facts that would free her. The prosecuting attorney has conjured up a, a female monster, a, a Dracula with bloodstained fangs. Look at the defendant, gentlemen. Is this the face of a monster? Is this the face of a, a vampire with premeditated murder in her heart? Gentlemen of the jury, this is the face of a girl who might be your sister or your wife or your own child. This is the face of a girl who, if she killed, killed with a God-given right of a woman to defend herself. None of this matters, though, because Karen is there to remind Joan that no matter what she does, she will always be with her. Joan decides the only way to move forward is to destroy Karen, and that means destroying herself. So before the not guilty decision is read, she screams, in a piercing way, of course, and admits her guilt. Despite all this, Eric continues to fight on for Joan, even convincing the governor, hours before her execution, that she is insane and would like to allow Santa Claus to perform some hocus-pocus hypnotism. Oh, thank you, Mother. By the way, hypnotism is not hocus-pocus, but the putting to sleep of the conscious mind so that the subconscious mind can be reached. The very subconscious which brings you your dreams and stores away your memories of everything that ever happened to you. Yes, believe me, hypnotism is as much a medical reality as this book. Since Edward apparently reads only the election returns, I'm going to tell him what's in this book. It's a widely known work on psychology. It tells about a woman who a number of years ago came to a Dr. Kilbridge for help. Physically, there was nothing wrong with her, but she was apparently suffering from loss of memory. Oh, now he's going to tell us that I should pardon Joan Ellis because she can't remember whether she did it with a gun or a knife. Well, this woman had discovered that without her conscious knowledge, she was doing many tawdry, embarrassing things, both in public and private, that were completely out of character with her usual nature. Well, under hypnosis, that is, putting the conscious mind to sleep and letting the subconscious mind operate at its fullest, Dr. Kelbridge 
discovered the amazing fact that there, living inside this woman, was another personality. That's absolute poppycock. This was the part of the film in which Obler made use of special effects, which I felt worked out extremely well to display what Joan's character was suffering from, split personality. A disorder in which a person may experience two or more parts within themselves. One of these personalities will often become more dominant and take control. In this case, the doctor, Santa Claus, was attempting to rid Joan of Karen and have Joan take back the reins. Santa Claus has the idea that if the personalities were to face one another, he may be able to have Joan become the dominant voice, eliminating Karen. Naturally, to accomplish this, Santa makes use of hypnotism to have the two personalities, Joan and Karen, confront. The personalities exit Joan's body. Obler completes this with the use of double exposure. By exposing the same piece of film twice, which for some of us that have shot film, this may have happened accidentally when the film gets stuck in the camera or you shoot the same roll twice. The double exposure creates a superimposition of the two images to create one single image. Therefore, you can have Joan standing next to her body in the same image. I think Obler made a wonderful use of this effect here to demonstrate this, and the actor did a wonderful job of displaying Karen's werewolf personality. She dons heavier makeup and has a wild look in her eye with a feral grin. In the end, hypnotism saves the day. Joan is free from the raucous and unruly Karen, and she is left to live her life under the law. I would like to believe that Obler would be a fan of the cinematic crypt. And who knows, maybe he is. I can only hope that he will pay me a visit someday, as I would imagine he would be a much charming ghost. You're still there? Good. Well, permit me to try you with the humorous type of horror. Horror can't have humor? (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to watch Bewitched, it is available on DVD and out there digitally in the wild world of the internets. In my next episode, I will be uncovering the grave of Betty Davis to discuss the film Another Man's Poison. Hope you tune in. Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on the program. Like this one from my film pal and skeleton enthusiast, Jim Dad. 
Thursday, I checked the weather forecast and noticed that there were three pages listed instead of the usual two. When I opened them, I found your podcast hidden behind the Noah page. I listened last night. You were informative without being pedantic. I will listen to some more. Well, consider yourself one of the goblins, Jim Dad. Thanks for taking the trip down to the crypt. Take note, goblins and ghouls. A raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. Mwah! So log into iTunes to leave your own review. Or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. So drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Cinematic Crypt. Don't forget to visit moviejohn.com shop to subscribe to the movie zine that I create quarterly with my film pals. Our next print issue features jetpacks, flying cars, and spaceships. Yes, that's right, the future. Does your future hold a mailbox filled with awesomeness? Visit moviejohn.com shop to subscribe today as they are beginning to fly out into the universe. This issue features a few writings from your favorite little gravedigger, specifically one on another Arch Obler flick, The Twonky, and a crossword puzzle celebrating a former flick of the crypt, Frankenstein 1970. Don't miss out. Shout out to my Canadian film pal, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also, thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmucci, for the rad cinematic crypt logo. If you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw It in a Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the movies for the answer. This weekly podcast will feature a rotation of movie John pals to serve as experts to answer all of your burning questions. No question is too silly. Maybe you're wondering where to start in silent film watching or what to do with that creepy doll that is hiding out in your attic. Ask away by contacting us on Twitter at I saw it in a movie or email at dear I saw it in a movie at gmail.com. And if you're old-fashioned, like your favorite little gravedigger, you can contact us via postal mail at Attention Movie John, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. All of this information is available on our website at moviejohn.com under MJ Podcasts. Can't wait to hear from you, old sport. And remember, for every question there is a movie with the answer. A new episode is available every Monday. I go out walking after midnight Out in the moonlight Just like we used to do I'm always walking after midnight Searching for I walk for miles along the
It is now time to close the coffin. Here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Karen. The scissors, pick them up. For you never know when you will need to snip or cut something. Scissors are yes. Goodbye, film pals.